You can open in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. There is a powerful cultural assumption today that if if you want to be happy, if you want to have a joy-filled life, then you must fulfill the desires of your heart. You know, and when I originally wrote my sermon, I sort of had quotes from people you would recognize that are saying, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. And then I realized, I don't think I really need to prove that to you. Right? I don't think, when I say the culture says follow your heart, I don't think there's very many people here this morning says, oh yeah, we'll prove it. We all know that's a, that's a powerful sort of undertone in our culture. In fact, this idea is so pervasive that to deny it outside of the church, to deny it, people look at you askance as if you've denied the law of gravity. It's just assumed to be true. But this common assumption. It's, it's popular, but it's really rooted in a wrong view of man, and it's rooted in a wrong view of the heart. We should actually only ever follow our hearts if our hearts are inherently good. But if the prophet Jeremiah is correct and our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else, if they're desperately sick and we can't even understand the nature of our own corruption, well, Writing well before, you know, famous people were telling us to follow our hearts. Two German scholars wrote this in the mid-1800s. Based on the Bible's teaching of the heart, therefore, they say, a man must not trust the suggestions and illusions of his own heart. Right? A man must not, or and a woman must not trust the suggestions and illusions of his or her own heart. So if we cannot trust our heart, in fact, we should not follow our own Heart, what are we to do? Well, in our text this morning, we are taught that we must actually guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. This is what we must, that, that, that is to say this, we must restrain our hearts from kind of going the way that they naturally want to go. From entertaining those sinful desires that even for those who are in Christ and have been set free from the enslaving power of sin, even for us, we still wrestle with the flesh, we still wrestle against sinful passions and desires. We must guard our hearts against those sinful passions and desires. So I think Proverbs chapter 4 helps us in this endeavor. And so our first point this morning, there's really three sections of Proverbs chapter 4. The first nine verses, we might summarize it this way. Guard your heart by internalizing God's Word. Now, I asked Nate to read a a passage out of Matthew, which we'll get to in a moment. So I'm going to read kind of each section at a time here. I'm going to read the first nine verses. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father... Tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. 
So Proverbs chapter 4 opens like so many of these admonitions that we've been looking at as we've walked through the book of Proverbs. It's an admonition for the son, or in one one, it's it's plural, it's sons, to be attentive to his words and his teaching. Now, we don't have time to demonstrate all of this and why we argued this from Proverbs chapter 2. You can read Proverbs chapter 2. But remember, we've been saying that the words of the Father, the Father serves as sort of the mouthpiece of God. He's not, he's not delivering His own wisdom. He's delivering wisdom from above. And, and so His commandments are actually the commandments that have been received from God. He's not giving His own counsel, His own insight, His own understanding. So Solomon here, who's the author of this, this portion of Proverbs, you know, it'll be made clear in other parts of Proverbs when Solomon is not the author, but he's the one writing here, and he's imploring his sons to follow his instruction, and his instruction is coming from the Lord. He's the conduit of the Lord's instruction to his son. Now we're going to talk a lot about wisdom, and I see a lot of faces of folks who are, who are just here for the first time, so I, I want to just take just a minute because I think when we hear the word wisdom, we think intellectual insight. We think maybe a, a, a monk who has gone in and been silent for two years and he's come out and he, man, he must be wise because he's been meditating. No, it's, it, it is the ability to know what God would have you to do in any circumstance, the skill to carry it out, and then the motivation to follow through. It's knowing what to do, how to do it, and being willing to go for it because you love God and you want to serve Him. That is true wisdom. It's knowledge and skill and will wrapped up into this word we call wisdom. And since God, we've been arguing, is the only one who is truly wise. God alone is inherently wise. He's the only wise God the New Testament calls Him then all wisdom is wrapped up in Him, and all wisdom is contained in Him. So there is no wisdom apart from Him, so we must know Him and approach Him with humility and enter into relation with the relationship with Him through Christ if we are to gain any wisdom, all right? That's sort of a summary of what we might say from Proverbs 1.7, uh, Proverbs chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, chapter 9 says. It is from the Lord's mouth that wisdom comes, right? It's His wisdom. Now, we understand that, right? We've, we've seen that as we've been walking through Proverbs uh, this summer. But what is unique about chapter 4 is that we actually get to hear from Grandpa, right? We've been hearing from Dad a lot to the Son. Well, here we get to hear from Grandpa David, right? Solomon's writing, so King David becomes Papa David, and we get to hear what he said to young Solomon. All right, we see that in verse 3 there. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me. Solomon saying, when I was a young boy, my father actually instructed me when I was tender. That, that would be like moldable, impressionable able to be bent, right, when he was tender, he was young, flexible, he needed to be uh, kind of sturdied up by his parents' counsel, he was cherished by his mother, it says there, so he's saying, when I, when I was a small child, what did my father do to me? He taught me. When I was a small child, he taught me, and he said to me. Now, before we get to the content 
of what David poured into his son. We should probably pause for a second and ask the question, why would Solomon appeal to his father's wisdom? Well, I think one thing that Solomon wants to do is root his instruction in the generations that preceded him. He's trying to help his son understand that what I'm passing down to you is not novel and it's not new. It's rooted in what's been passed down to me. And what's been passed down to me is actually rooted in the eternal truth that comes down from God himself. Now, for you young people here this morning, I know it's tempting to believe that, you know, everyone in the world must, must believe like what's cool and cultural and popular today. But the reality is it's so new. And what Solomon says, the newness of it is actually a knock against it. You should want to root yourself in something that's true and has been true from all eternity. And so he wants to root his instruction in previous generations. And what we have is a beautiful testimony of a son who was taught by his mother and uh, by his father and his mother how to live. We've been saying live God's way in God's world for God's glory. You'll be tired of hearing that by the time we get through the Proverbs, but it'll be in your brain. So this serves, I think, for the son, it serves as both an encouragement and a warning. The encouragement is to keep walking in the way that's been passed down to you. Walk in the way that grandpa and grandma walked and that you've seen mom and dad walk continue in this path of path of wisdom. The warning, I think, is this, and I don't think it's meant to be a guilt trip, right? We can guilt our kids into saying, you, you remember, you're a, you know, you're a hofer, don't you? You go out there and you represent, you know, it's not, it's not that. But I think it is a warning. Sorry, Nate, I just picked the first. <laughs> It's a warning that to walk in foolishness brings consequences, we'll see, not only on yourself, but in subsequent generations. It's a call to keep going in the way of wisdom because it's not just your future at stake. So the question that's sort of proposed to the son here by by the appeal to grandpa is, now if you walk away, if you choose the path of foolishness, who pours into the next generation? Right? If you follow your own heart, if you trust yourself, if you rely on your own understanding, if you follow the path of the wicked, spurn God and his word, and, and indulge in the way of folly, who will instruct your children? Right? So for some here this morning, the words of Solomon fit with uh, your experience. Right? You think about your dad and, and your mom, or your grandma and your grandpa. And you can praise the Lord and thank the Lord that they brought you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, certainly no one did that perfectly, right? You know, you hear these stories of like, how were you abused by the church? Well, my parents made me go to church. Well, I don't want to make light of like churches abusing their authority, but man, we should be thankful if we had parents that brought us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Some of you can... Do what Solomon does here. Look at grandma and grandpa. Look at their example. Others, though, have been left a broken and an ungodly heritage. Right? I think of many in our church who are actually raising up kids significantly, by, to, to God's glory, raising up kids significantly different than they were raised. Right? We should be thankful for that if they were raised in, in this ungodliness and they're raising up children to know and love Christ. 
And so there's, there's hope for you this morning. If, if you've come to Christ, maybe as the first one in your family, to, to bring, and God has granted you children, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In fact, God has been so gracious to us as the church that he's created in us this one new family where you don't even have to have your own kids to take a younger person under your arm and say, hey, let me walk with you and let me show you what it is to follow Christ, to encourage them to know and love him. So I think that's the reason Solomon appeals to his father instructing him, but what, what do we see in his message? Well, it sounds a lot like what Solomon's saying, right? Verse 4, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth, right? So it's the same appeal that Solomon's been giving. Get wisdom. Get insight, right? That word get, it, or, or it could be really translated by, too. It's like, get wisdom, get wisdom. Twice in verse 5, twice in verse 7. It's just this command, command, command. Get this. Not only that, not only do we have these just straight up, like, imperative type commands, but then wisdom is sort of pictured in verse 6 as a bride to be loved, to be embraced, and to be cherished. Right, we've seen wisdom kind of personified as, as this beautiful lady who's calling out. And here, the, the grandfather saying, you know what? If you get a hold of wisdom, cherish her, love her, hang on to her. Right? I had a friend in college one time who was dating this you know, wonderful, godly lady. And it came time, like it's time for him to propose. And he comes to me and he says, man, I don't know about this. Like, what if this? What if that? I'm like, man, you better go marry her tomorrow before she figures out the truth about you, all right? Like, and I think that's sort of what's going on here. Like, if you get wisdom, you better recognize what you have and do not let go. Cling to her, cherish her, prize her, love her. But it will, it will cost you. There's an inherent cost here, right, in verse 7. Whatever you get, get wisdom. In other words, like whatever it costs you, whatever it costs you, go after it. One author sort of summarized verse 7, which I think can be kind of confusing. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. He summarized it this way. Do you want it? Do you want wisdom? Then come get it. Because it's available to those who would go after it. But it is costly. But whatever the cost, Grandpa's saying, it's worth it. So what is the cost? And what, what might the cost be of going after God's wisdom? Well, giving up maybe our own dreams, our own ideas about how life should work. It is submitting ourselves to God's clear will in Scripture. And so what, what David does is what Solomon has done throughout Proverbs is then hold up sort of the reward of wisdom, right? To say it, it's costly, but it's worth it. It's costly, but it's worth it. He says God's wisdom brings life in verse 4. It keeps you and guards you in verse 6. Wisdom will exalt you and honor you with a crown in verse 9. In other words, and we've talked through how to understand these kind of proverbial statements here about long life. And again, we just don't have time to say everything every week. But you might think about it this way. 
to walk God's way in God's world for God's glory is the only way to not waste your life. It's the only way to not throw the only way to not throw away your life. And it's the only life worth living. It's the only true life to be found in this world as we even look forward to eternal life. Again, our world teaches us something completely different from this. It says if you want to live, if you really want to experience life, you need to be young and you need to be fit and you need to be attractive and you need to be rich and you need to be able to do whatever you want. You need to be able to sleep with whoever you want. We can't think, we can we can brainstorm together and come up with one person who's given themselves to that, looking for life in that, and actually found it. But there's a lot of us old, slightly out of shape, people in this room who have found life in Christ. Life in Christ, then the abundance of life that comes in Christ. So Grandpa says this, and again, he's, he's relaying God's words. He says, let your heart hold fast to my words. Let your heart hold fast to my words. If you want to guard your heart, and we'll talk about that when we get to verse 23, but if you want to guard your heart, you must hold fast to the word of God. You must hold fast to the word of God. You must internalize it in your heart. Secondly is this, guard your heart by considering the two paths in life. Look there in verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So I said there's like three really clear paragraphs or, or sections in this text. And you can, you can notice the sections by the repetition of that, my son, my son, my son. So he begins this new address here, my son, and it's usually followed with like, hear or listen or pay attention to my commands. And what, what, what Solomon does here is, is as a father, he basically holds up the path of wisdom and the path of wickedness together to expose the foolishness of walking away from the Lord and walking in the path of wickedness. So in verses 10 through 13, what you get then is the way of the righteous, the way of wisdom. And what does he start with? Well, the same thing he just passed down from his father. Hear, my son, and accept my words. Right? It's a call to internalize these words of wisdom. The son, he says, I, he says to the son, I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've taught you the path of uprightness there in verse 11. And he's just repeatedly urging his son to choose the path of righteousness. In fact, you can look in verse 13 and just sort of see the, the machine gun commands here. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her. Just one after another. Three imperatives. Back to back to back. Well, what is the 
path of righteousness. Well, if you have to keep it and you have to guard it, the path of righteousness is one of continuous, disciplined pursuit of God and His Word by the grace of God. What the Father wants then for His Son to see is this, this path is straight. It is, it is liberating, he says in, in verse 12, when you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble, because the, the stumbling blocks that, that sin create in a person's life when they give themselves over to sin are sort of removed, they're taken out of the way. Right, The way of the wicked, you're, you're sort of overcomplicating your life when you walk in wickedness. This is not to say you won't suffer. It's not to say you won't have hardship. It's not to say you won't have trials. Certainly, we will suffer. But it, but it is to say, and we've said this in, in previous chapters as well, that when we walk against the design of the Creator, when we walk in sin, we complicate our life even further. We make life harder on ourselves. Why? Because sin never satisfies, it never delivers, and it always makes life more difficult. It never provides what it promises, freedom and liberation and pleasure and joy. It does not deliver. And so then you get the way of the wicked in verses 14 through 16. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Right? He just gave the positive commands, get this, pursue this, keep this. Now he gives the negative, do not go the way of the wicked. Do not even step foot on that path, and certainly do not keep going down that path. Again in verse 15, he blasts the warning, avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it, pass on. Again, imperative command, 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 command. Do not go down this path. And there's two reasons why he gives that, that he should avoid it. You can pick that up in your text. If you underline your Bible, you could underline that word for. Verse 16, verse 17, for this, for this. Those are reasons to do what he just said to do. And they both have to do with this reality, that those who have chosen the, the, the way of wickedness go further than they ever anticipated. Essentially, the Father is saying, you may look at the description of the wicked in verses 16 and 17 and say, well, no, I think I can walk this path and avoid becoming like these guys. Right, the guys in verse 16 and 17 are, are wicked dudes. Right, they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are restless unless they've been, been successful in dragging you into their life of violence and, and sin. The, in fact, this, this wickedness is it, it, it's the food and drink. Like, that's their sustenance is to walk in wickedness. And the temptation is uh, to say, well, I think I can walk this path and avoid becoming like this guy. And I think what Solomon's saying, no, that's the end result. That's where this path leads. That's where the end of the line is. And so I think the, 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 the warning here is don't be naive. Don't be naive about your ability to control how far your wickedness will go if you choose to walk away from the Lord. Don't be naive about how far that will take you. The reality is very few people set out to ruin their lives with sinful choices, right? Very few people wake up and they say, you know what, I think I'm going to ruin my family and my marriage today. Most people don't do that. They end up doing something they never thought they would do because they began walking down this path, compromising the truth of God's word, giving up on 
walking in obedience to him, and they look back and they say, man, I would have never thought I was capable of something like that. These wicked people are restless to do evil. They want others to join in their own wickedness that they can't rest unless somebody else has stumbled in with them. And they're robbed of any sense of true satisfaction in God because sin becomes their only delight. And Solomon warns to to head down that path, this is the end of that path. And so what he does in verses 18 and 19 is then compare these two paths as if the choice isn't obvious enough, right? But there's something in us, right? If if we were just like neutral, blank slate, which one you want, it's obvious, right? But there's something in us that, that... pulls us towards the path of the wicked. So Solomon compares these two. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So he kind of, again, contrasts these two. The way of the righteous is fully lit. You can see what's ahead. You can avoid some severe pitfalls. Right? Just think about what he said in Proverbs chapter 1 about don't run with those who are quick to do violence. Because when you run with those who are quick to do violence and you set a trap for someone else and you're trying to trap them and you're trying to kill them and you're trying to rob them, guess what happens? That violence visits you. Right? That's what he warned the son in chapter 1. And so here he's saying, hey, if you walk in wisdom, the, the, the path is lit, the road is straight. You know, again, God's plan for each person is unique. They may still suffer. Violence may visit you. But if you walk in foolishness, you're sort of complicating your life. So the path of the righteous is fully lit. You can see what's ahead and avoid some pitfalls. While in verse 19, it says, the way of the wicked is deep darkness. Now that word in Exodus chapter 10 with the plagues, it's actually translated pitch darkness. Pitch darkness. There are hazards ahead when you're walking the path of foolishness and there's no way to see it because you're blind. The way of wisdom is the way of light. And it's the way of life, Solomon says. It's the way of light and it's the way of life. She is your life, Solomon said there in verse 13. Contrasted that with the way of darkness, which leads to ultimately to death. So as we think about this, Life and light, darkness and death. I, I, I hope that it's become clear that this, this imagery of the two paths is not just about, I need to do better today than I did yesterday, right? It's not just about, like, I need to make more good choices than I make bad choices. The, the path of foolishness and the path of righteousness, it's about the direction of your entire life. You are indeed on one of these two paths, one leading to abundant life, the other leading to eternal death. And the reality is that we don't have it inside of us to, to put ourselves on the right path and to maintain the right path. The Bible speaks of us. I mentioned earlier about there's something in us that's drawn towards that path of wickedness. Well, the Bible describes us as sheep who have wandered, who have gone astray, and are completely lost. The Bible describes us as those who, outside of Christ, are darkened in our understanding. We are unable to see what's true and right. The Bible describes us as those who are dead in our trespasses and sins. 
This is why the, the, the coming of Christ into the world is something that we sing about and we preach about and we pray about because what we need is light and life. And when Jesus shows up, he says he's the light of the world and he comes to give life and life more abundantly. He is the light that, that John says he outshines the darkness. And through the proclamation of Jesus' perfect life, his, his death, his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins in our place, the proclamation of that message and his victorious resurrection, it actually gives light through that proclamation, through preaching Christ, through sharing Christ, God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Son in the face of Jesus Christ. The God who said, let there be light in the beginning, shines in our hearts so that we might see Christ and embrace Him by faith. We need the light of the world and we need life from outside of us. Jesus said of Himself that He came to give life and life more abundantly. That is life that can barely be conceived of. Life with such joy that it can hardly be comprehended. That is e eternal life. Eternal life. He grants eternal life to all those who believe in Him and turn from their sin and embrace His work as their only hope of being reconciled to God. And, and then you are united with Him and in Him is hidden all the riches of wisdom and Knowledge. So this isn't like pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start walking like a better person. It's come to Christ. Come to Christ because in Him are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In Him is eternal life. Right? John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. He is our only hope. He is, the, he is the pioneer of our faith. He has walked the road of wisdom. He has walked the path of righteousness, the only one to have done it perfectly. He is the gate that we must come through if we ever hope to live a righteous life. And He's the one that must walk beside us if we hope to maintain this path, walk down the path of righteousness. It's only... It's only when we've come to faith in Christ that we can seek to exercise the wisdom from above. Right? I'm just trying to avoid the idea that, man, I just need to, I just need to do better. I just need to be better. No, it's, it's coming to Christ humbly. He's the one in which wisdom is hidden, and you're clinging to Him. You love Him. You want to serve Him. So you dive into His Word, and the Holy Spirit uses the Word to change your heart, and you grow in Christ, and you grow in wisdom, and you learn to navigate God's world for His glory. The reality is there's only two paths. There's not, a, there's not a third way. There are only two paths. One pioneered, again, by our Savior, Jesus Christ, that begins with humbling yourself before Him, confessing your sin, embracing Him by faith, and the other path leads to eternal death. It's relying on yourself, relying on your own goodness, fulfilling your own desires, well, that path leads to eternal death. We had these, when I was a student pastor, we had these two junior high girls, and they were often at odds, you know, two popular girls just trying to have it out. Who's going to rule this youth group? 
And they were at the time probably what Proverbs would call the simple, you know. And again, we want to think like simple means dumb and they're not smart. It wasn't that. The, the, the simple in Proverbs are sort of standing at, at the fork in the road. Am I going to embrace Christ, rest in His righteousness, and try to live life unto His glory? Or am I going to live life my way on my terms and forget God? So they were... They were simple, right? They were in church every Sunday, every Wednesday night because their parents made it a priority. And as I think about our time in student ministry, one of these girls chose the path of, of folly and she just walked away from it all. And she's complicated her life with unwise and sinful choices. She's dissatisfied with life. She has no joy. And this other girl, again, you could have never guessed. In fact, you would have guessed wrong if you tried to guess which one would go which way. But this other girl came to Christ, grew in wisdom and knowledge. She married a godly man. They have a godly family. They serve in a gospel-centered church. They are enjoying God's goodness. She's avoided many of the stumbling blocks by God's grace. And she has more than life today. Right? She has the hope of eternal life with Christ forever. There's only two paths. And what Solomon does, he holds these up, and, and ultimately he's saying, it's, it's, a no, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. So guard your heart by internalizing God's Word. Guard your heart by considering these two paths. And lastly, guard your heart by recognizing the role your heart plays in your life. Or you might say, guard your heart by recognizing its centrality. Look in verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So we see that, again, my son, right? Again in verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words. And so there's that appeal again. It's just over and over and over again. We might summarize this last section this way. If you wanted to sort of put three kind of sub-points that, that form one sentence, you might say, guard what you take in, right? We'll see through your ears and through your eyes. Guard what you take in because it shapes your heart and your heart drives your life. Guard what you take in because it shapes your heart and your heart drives your life. Let's look at that. Guard what you take in in verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Again, it's a call to hear the word. Incline your ear to my sayings. He's imploring the son to pay attention to his words, to bend his ear towards his instruction. Not only that, but it's apparent that, you know, we're not surprised that David can read and Solomon can read, right? Some of these aristocrats could read in Israel. And, and so he's saying, not only that, but look at the words. Look at the words and, and read the words and don't let them pass from your sight. Let them, let them 
hear them and see them and let them sink down into your hearts. This is 21. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. These words are coming in from your ears. It's things you're seeing, and they're sinking down into your hearts. And so the father takes the word of God, and he puts it before his son to, to hear and to, to read. And the thing that the father's concerned about is that that would begin to impact the heart, that it would change the heart, that the thing would flow into the ears and through the eyes of his son, that that, that, that thing would be the instruction of God's word, and that that would then shape his heart, and that would be a protection against sin. So for us this morning, we might say that in Christ, we, we have been set free from sort of the dominating power, enslaving authority of sin. We have indeed received new hearts. We have new desires, new affections, new loves. We love God because He first loved us. But we know that we're not free from the pull of these sinful thoughts and passions and desires that tend to lurk in our hearts. In Christ, we're not fully yet delivered from from the experience of temptation. But God has made His people alive, freed them to walk in obedience, and He's given what you might consider like handcuffs for these these evil desires and, and the restraints. It is the Word of God. It is God's Word. You know, we've quoted this a few times through Proverbs, but your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So what does he want to, the son to take in, to, to begin to shape his heart, that it might be guarded and protected? Well, it is the, the very word of God. So we say, guard what you take in because it shapes your heart. Because it shapes your heart. Look there in verse 23, a passage many of you know, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So this is what Solomon, I think, is doing. He's saying, this is supremely important. Some of your translations say, above all else, Guard your heart. And I think, that's, I think that's best. I think that's how we're meant to understand this, this text. Above all else, guard your hearts. Like a soldier defending his post, guard your heart. Well, how? By hiding the Word of God in your heart. By being renewed in the spirit of your mind through God's Word. Verse 23, then, is not only a command, but it's a reason given. Why should I, why should I do this? Why should I care about my heart? What, why is the heart a big deal? Well, because your heart drives your life. Your heart drives your life. Right? This reminds us of the priority of what we call heart. You might hear us call inner man. That's what Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 3. Pray that you might be strengthened through the Spirit in your inner man so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. This reminds us of the priority of our inner lives, our thoughts, our affections, our desires, our will. It's primary because what is, what is going on inside of us, and this is why I asked Nate to read Matthew, because Jesus says, uh, you know, where do these behaviors come from? Murder, theft, adultery, sexual immorality. Where do these come from? Well, they come from our, our hearts. So the Bible over and over and over again emphasizes the priority of what's going on inside of you over and above what's going on around you. Right? What's around you can put pressure on you, and it can make life more difficult. It can make life harder. But ultimately, what happens is that pressure, that suffering, it just sort of squeezes your heart, and what's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. 
or as we'll see, through your hands or your feet. So verse 23 is like the hinge on which this section hangs. Verses 21 and 22 argue that you should hear good teaching and not lose sight of them because these things come into your heart and they shape you and they guard you from those evil desires that still lurk in there. And as your heart is shaped and transformed by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, then your outer man, your your actions, your words, the things you can see, then those things begin to change. That's why in verses 23 through the rest of the chapter, he starts to use words like your feet, what your eyes are looking at, not what's coming into your eyes, but what your eyes are looking forward to, or even your mouth, your speech. The Word shapes your heart, and your heart shapes your life. Right, So be careful what you take in because it influences your heart and your heart drives your... It determines your actions. It determines you, your actions. You, you might translate the end of verse 23, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from your heart. Your heart governs your life. Again, those behaviors that Nate read, they flow from your heart. So then the direction of your life is determined by your heart. Like a a stream, it flows from your heart. Now I was thinking about, you know, sort of how our hearts are hidden, but we can see our outer man. I was thinking about, you know, sort of being up in the mountains and these, these rivers that end up being these really massive rivers. Well, they start with these little trickles, you know, high in the Rocky Mountains, and you can maybe not even see where it begins because of the snowpack, but, but under there is sort of the source from which the rest of the river will eventually flow. Well, that's the way our heart is. We can't see our hearts. I can't see what's going on in your heart now. But your actions reveal what's in your heart. So if, if you want to change this morning, if you want to grow in, in the Lord, consider your heart. Right? One pastor said it this way. Many people struggle to experience meaningful life change because they deal with their problems downstream instead of upstream. They work downstream to get debris out of the water. The more they remove, the more flows in. True change only happens when you go upstream and address what's coming into your heart. Right? So if you're just constantly thinking, I need to modify my behavior, I need to stop, 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 if that's the only thing that comes into your mind, it, what, what this pastor is encouraging us, and I think it's consistent with Ephesians or Proverbs chapter 4, is to consider uh, on the other end, what are you meditating on? What are you thinking on? What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you filling your heart with? Because that's going to shape what you do. The actions of our lives are simply carried out in our bodies, but they're ultimately driven by our hearts. And again, you see that in the rest of the passage as Solomon turns to to outer man things like speech, walking, behavior. They're carried out in the body. So what does this then look like for us? Right? What does it look like when somebody is guarding their heart from those evil impulses, those evil desires, those passions of the flesh. I think there's one example we could look at that flows, I think, directly from our text. It said back in verse 16 that that the person on the path of the wicked, right, that person in verse 16 says they cannot sleep unless they've caused someone else to stumble. 
They want to drag others into sin. They want to bring others down with them. They relentlessly seek to draw others away and to cause them to sin. We're not surprised by that, right? We look at our world. But then the question is, but what difference does it make when a person has come to Christ, they're being transformed by the Word of God, they're hiding the Word of God in their heart, they're guarding their heart against selfish ambition and desire and and wickedness. They're doing this through the purifying work of God through His Word. Well, what what does it look like? Well, maybe you can take some time this afternoon and, and read through Romans 14, we don't have time to turn there this morning, but in that passage, Paul talks about causing someone to stumble. And Paul says that not only do you not desire to draw others into sin with you, not only do you you, you not desire others to join you in wickedness, but that you so love others that you're sort of willing to lay your own Christian freedom down so that you might not tempt someone else to sin. Right? You're willing to give up things in the person, in the presence of a person who's trying to follow Christ. You give up something for their sake so that you don't even come close to helping your brother or sister stumble. That's the That's what happens when a person comes to Christ. In Christ, changed by the Holy Spirit, we're actively considering the good of others by giving up things that we might enjoy, things like meat in Romans 14, if it means removing the occasion for someone else to sin against God in their own hearts. You willingly lay down your own prerogatives for the good of others. What a difference, right? What a difference Christ makes. And ultimately, that's what we want. We want the heart of Christ to be formed in us. We want to be made like Jesus, who is the ultimate and clearest example of laying down his own prerogatives, laying down his own rights for the good of others. So as you think about guarding your heart, let me just end with this. Consider meditating on Christ. Consider Christ. Consider Christ. Right? When old Minister Robert Murray McShane said, for every look at yourself, take take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ, for he is altogether lovely. We want the heart of Christ. We want the heart of Christ. And we we come to him with humble faith. And we ask him for it. Let's do that in prayer. Lord God, we do want to be made like Christ. We want to be renewed into the image of Christ. We want to love where He loves. We want to hate the things that He hates. And Lord, we just pray for Your grace that we might guard our hearts this week, that we might hide Your Word in our hearts so we might not sin against You, that Your Spirit might take that Word and it might trans- He might transform us from the inside out. Lord God, thank You for the chance to study and think about Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.